This book is, as I've mentioned to you so many times, one of my favorite books. It probably is my favorite book because it gives us the picture, kind of the, the comprehensive picture of what it looks like for us to be saved, how that happens, and then what it looks like for us to live that out. We start in chapter 1, and you'll see above verse 3, it says spiritual blessings in Christ. Remember, that was where it talked about God's grand plan to save humanity and to glorify himself through the cosmos. Remember, this is a plan that started before the foundations of the earth. It talked about him choosing us in Christ, um, that he chose before the foundation of the earth that we would be holy and blameless, that we, we, that we would be adopted as sons. So it goes on from there um, after he finishes this beautiful picture of what it means to be or, or this grand plan of God he goes into a moment of thanking God um, for them and and praising God for them and praying that they would be strengthened to comprehend everything that they've gone through then it picks up in chapter two and he says this individually individually this looks like people rising from the dead he says we were dead in our trespasses but we are made alive in Christ and he talks about individual salvation what it looks like for a person to be dead in their sins and then made alive in Christ for good works. Then he goes on from there to remind us this grand plan of God's not just about individual salvation, but about corporate salvation as well. He says, in the body of Christ, the dividing walls that existed between um, the Jews and the Gentiles, this ethnic divide are broken down. And that in the one new body of Christ, it's Jew and Gentile. It's male and female. It's rich and poor. And those dividing lines are taken down. And he goes on to talk about, in chapter 3, that our participation in this is by grace. We get to be now the, the vessels, the, 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 the vehicles, the instruments that God uses to make this grand plan known. We get to participate in the revealing of the gospel. And then... When Paul hits the end of chapter 3, he pushes the clutch in and shifts gears really big. He goes from talking about theological, deep theological things about grand plans of God before the foundation of the world. And then he switches in chapter 4 to say, here's what it looks like every single day. Here's what it looks like in the day-to-day -day life. It looks like a unified church in chapter 4. A church that has uh, people that are using their gifts to bless the church. And it has leaders who are doing the same thing. It says... It looks like a new life and taking off old, dirty clothes and putting on new, fresh, clean clothes, which he used to say, you take off lying and you put on truth. Um, you take off stealing and you put on giving and generosity. Uh, he talks about how the life changes. He then goes into what it looks like to be part of the family or what, what a spirit-filled family would look like. Husbands and wives, the way they treat one another. Children and parents, the way they treat one another. Slaves and masters, which we, we talked about how that really applies to us today as employees and employers. All of these things, the gospel, this great grand plan that God has been accomplishing throughout history has ramifications for us every single day in the smallest, minute things that we do. Even in the way that we talk to our wife at the end of the day or how we discipline our kids or what we do at work throughout the day. Really boring, mundane stuff that's impacted by this amazing plan of God, which brings us to the final chapter. And as you can think, Paul, um, what he's wanting to do is he's wanting to bring this, this beautiful book to a close um, with maybe almost like a poem, right? He uses the armor of God, this poetic picture of what it looks like to live the Christian life, and he pictures it as a battle. He pictures it as a war. And that's where we're at this morning. He finishes it with that. And I think it's to say, 
all of this, all of this, this beautiful picture that Paul's painted and this Christian life that he calls us to live can only be accomplished by doing this last thing, which is depending on and trusting in these virtues, these characteristics that God gives us that we might stand and fight and bring this whole grand plan to a culmination in him. So with all of that being said, let's read these last verses of chapter 6. And we're going to read verses 10 through 20. Uh, 10 through 20, and it says this, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be, you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and have and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So we start off this passage, and I think the first thing Paul wants you to see is you've got to understand what kind of fight, what kind of war you're in, because that's going to dictate how you fight, right? If you're in a, a, a wrestling match, like a collegiate wrestling match, there's rules that you have to follow and there's rules that um, you don't follow uh, because it's a specific kind of fight. It's a specific kind of war. If we think back to the colonial days, there was a certain way of fighting where they just line up the guys on one side, line up the guys on the other side, and just shoot back and forth like picking them off one by one. Well, then war changed, right? And it changed to more guerrilla warfare where you hide in the trees and you hide and you're not just lining up and just shooting at one another. There's a certain kind of way you fight a certain kind of war. And Paul says, we are in a spiritual battle. He says this battle, this fight is not against flesh and blood. Uh, it's against these other things, these things that are a spiritual battle. And it helps us to realize what he said in chapter one, remember, we're in this big grand plan that God is using to bring himself glory in the world. And we're fighting. We're a part of this great big battle, this fight that he has. And our battle is not against flesh and blood. And we make the mistake if we do think that our battle is against flesh and blood, against people, the people of this world. No, we're fighting against spiritual warfare. We're fighting against things that can't be seen and can't be touched, at least not directly. And he speaks about the devil's teams. He says that the devil has teams. He says that there are evil forces um, like rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces. Um, these are all different ways of describing um, these, these, these evil or bad acting spirits that, that exist in the world, right? We, we look and these are creatures. These are 
Uh, spiritual beings that have in their free will, they've rebelled against the Lord. There's not a grace given to them like there's a grace given to us as we've rebelled against him. And these are these are people who are or these are spirits that are working against the Lord and his his desires. You see, they have authority over the present darkness and they have authority in the heavenly places. Uh, just to bring some clarity there, heavenly places in the Bible, a lot of times is not speaking of the place where we spend eternity with God, but just speaking of the when you look up, those are the heavens, right? So when it says, and God created the heavens and the earth, it doesn't mean God created his house and our house or something like that. He's saying the place where we, we're standing right now is earth. And when we look up and the stars, the skies, the clouds, all that, that's the heavens in the biblical worldview. So he's saying these spiritual forces, these things that we're fighting against right now, currently, have some kind of domain in the air around us. Like in, in the world that we live in, these things are have authority. Watch the news. You don't have to watch very long and just kind of see that this world has a lot of evil things going on in it. And that's what he's talking about. The devil has these teams that are working around the clock, around the world. And the devil also has schemes. I'm pretty proud of that rhyme, so... You should be proud of that. Teams, he has teams and he's got schemes. It says in verse 16 that he's got flaming darts, uh, flaming darts that he shoots at us. These schemes, uh, these, are, these are ways that the devil, the way Satan seeks to trick us or deceive us. I think, cult, but if we think about what the devil does, his activity, what Satan does, I think we can get messed up when we look at him culturally. What I mean that, by that is through the lens of our culture. I think our culture has it wrong. We, they fall off the horse on two sides. On one side, they picture Satan as a cartoon, right? Uh, watch those cartoons from like the 50s, 60s, like the things we grew up watching on Saturday mornings. And there's like this little red, this little guy in a red suit, and he's got a pitchfork, and he's like standing on your shoulder and, and laughing like an evil little cartoon, right? I think Satan's much more dangerous than a cartoon. But on the flip side, our culture has started to monetize um, Satan and evil forces and demonic things. Like if you watch a scary movie, there's all this silliness where there's you know little girls with their heads spinning around, walking downstairs backwards, and doing crazy demonic stuff. I think that's a mistake to think of that as demonic activity because Satan's much more subtle than that. He's more dangerous than a cartoon, and he's more subtle than a scary movie. The Bible describes him as. A, prowl, a roaring lion, a, a prowling lion that seeks to devour, but also as, a, a, as he masquerades himself as an angel of light. I don't think Satan's goal is to make you super aware of his presence, like waking up in the middle of the night and your clock is spinning and he's like spooking you with demonics. I don't think that's what Satan's MO is. I think rather than, rather than trying to scare you, I think he'd rather tempt you into sin. He'd rather cause you to... Waste your time instead of spending it with your family. I think instead of scaring you with some spooky lady standing down your hall, he'd rather tempt you to lust by a lady on your phone. Those are the schemes of the devil. Not this silly cartoon stuff and not this spooky, scary movie stuff. What he wants to do is far more dangerous and far more subtle than what our culture would have us think of. So biblically, what are some of the schemes, the wiles of the devil? Well, one of them is challenging God's word. That's what he did on his first appearance, right? In Genesis 3, he challenged God's word. What did he say to Eve? Did, did God really say? That's, that's one of the first thing he says to Eve. Did God really say that? 
So one of the things the devil will do is try to tempt us to challenge God's word, to question. Did he really say what he said? Did he really mean what he meant? Another thing Satan will do is challenge our identity. We see that in Luke 4 when he says to Jesus, if you really are the son of God, you'll do this and this and this. He might say to you, if you really are a child of God, you wouldn't be suffering. If you really are a child of God, you wouldn't be sinning like that. If you really are a child of God, this or that. He challenges our identity in Christ. Another thing he does is twists scripture. We also see that in Luke 4. When Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Satan quotes scripture. He quotes scripture. He, he takes scriptures from the Old Testament and tries to apply those to Jesus saying, hey, if you jump off this building, nothing's going to happen to you. He's going to take care of you. The angels will come and catch you, yada, yada, yada. Satan's taking those scriptures and twisting him. That should be really scary to us because Satan is the father of lies. But part of his lie is to just twist the truth to where it's appealing. It's like, OK, you are quoting scripture there, Satan. Maybe you do have a point, but he'll twist the scriptures. And this would come in the former fashion of dangerous theologies and false teachings. We talked about this Wednesday in our uh, morning Bible study with our adults, how these false teachers will come up. And where do false teachers take place? False teachers aren't necessarily bringing these theologies from outside the church. False teaching happens inside the church. People who will stand in the pulpit and teach their own desires, their own things, their own will, um, the things that are beneficial to them rather than to the congregation. Those are false teachings where they prey upon people. Those false teachers are just acting like their father, the devil, which is how Jesus says that in the Gospels. When we have people taking Scripture, twisting it and using it for their own benefit, that is a trick of the devil. It's a trick of the devil. And finally, another thing that, the, that Satan will do is offer tempting alternatives to obedience. What did Satan say to Jesus when he, when he, when he was tempting him? He said, hey, I'll give, you, I'll give you the world. I'll give you all authority over all of the world. All you got to do is, is worship me. And if we're thinking from a, a purely um, worldly thought, man, I... It's much less painful to worship Satan than it is to die on the cross to redeem the people. So Satan gives Jesus an alternative. Hey, instead of following God's way of getting the earth, well, how about you follow my way? He gives us an alternative to obedience. So these are all tricky ways that Satan can impact us. And a question we often have, um, maybe you've heard this. There's probably a million YouTube videos about it. Uh, maybe you've asked it yourself. Can, can Satan... Or can a, can a Christian be demon-possessed? You've, you've maybe heard that question before. Maybe you've had it. And I think that's just the wrong question to ask. It's not, can a Christian be demon-possessed? The real question is, can a Christian be tempted by Satan still? And I think the answer is yes. All of these lies, the deceitfulness, the, 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 the teachings of this world are all around us. And you, Christian, can fall uh, prey to those temptations. The, the temptation to for all of those things, is still present for us, even if we're Christians. Don't worry about being possessed by him. He doesn't really care to do that that much, I don't think. I think he'd rather have you um, lie to your spouse. I think he'd rather have you lie on your taxes. He'd rather have you um, focus more on um, things that don't matter in eternity um, than focus on things that do matter. So, Christian, be careful 
and understand the kind of fight you're in. You're not in a fight that's against flesh and blood. No, you're in a fight that is spiritual. You are in spiritual warfare. So we need to, one, understand the fight. But I think, two, we also need to understand the armor that we have, the, 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 the tools in which God gives us. We see him say or in this passage, hey, you're in a spiritual fight. Therefore, put on spiritual armor. Put on these things from God. Where does the origin of this armor come from? I think Paul might have had, probably had a, a Roman soldier in mind um, because he's, his, his nation's ruled by Rome at the time. But I think more specifically, I think probably what's more in Paul's mind is the Old Testament Savior. In the Old Testament... These, these pieces of armor are pictured as being used by the Messiah, the coming Messiah, who would be God in the flesh. Isaiah 59 says this, The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. That's a direct quote to the, what we have in Ephesians. And a helmet of salvation on his head. So it's God is pictured. The Savior is the one that's pictured having this helmet on his head. He put on garments and vestiges for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So you can see there's other passages too that specifically reference these pieces of armor that's mentioned here. So which brings us to the, the question of, we've seen the origin of this armor is actually from the Old Testament. So what's the purpose of this armor? This armor is not human qualities that we need to get better at doing. No, these are God's characteristics that we're meant to imitate. They're not human qualities that we create, but they're God's characteristics that we imitate. Each piece of armor is more about the, the characteristic that goes with it rather than the piece of armor or the place it is on the body. The reason I say that is different pieces of armor are mentioned in different places throughout Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 says this, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. So Paul, the same guy that wrote the Armor of God chapter, says... Instead of saying breastplate of righteousness, he says breastplate of faith and love and a helmet of hope of salvation. Not salvation, but hope of salvation. So I, want you, I think we can make a mistake in trying to overemphasize the piece of armor and the location it is on the person. Like I've heard people teach like, you know, breastplates, the Roman soldiers, they had breastplates on the front, but nothing in the back because they didn't want you to turn your back to the... Maybe so, I don't know. But I think really the, the point isn't the piece of armor, but the characteristic of God that that piece of armor is pointing to. So let's look at these pieces, these characteristics of armor, that, or these characteristics of God that we're supposed to take on. The breastplate of truth, as opposed to lies. If we're going to fight against the one who's the father of lies, we should be grounded in the truth. We should have a belt of truth that holds everything together, that holds together the things that we believe. A breastplate of righteousness. Now there's debate about is this imputed righteousness? Meaning, is this a righteousness we get from Jesus? Uh, when he dies on the cross, he takes our sin, we take his righteousness. That's definitely true, but I think this is more talking about righteous living, our righteous living. That if we will live righteously, it, it's like a breastplate that, that can't be penetrated. If we live our life as um, it says in the, in the descriptions of a pastor and a deacon, above reproach. If we're living our life above reproach, then attacks can't come our way. It says shoes of the gospel. 
Uh, these, this is the gospel. This is the message of salvation that is brought to us. And we need to have this like shoes, like we're ready to go, like ready to spread the word. Maybe even um, those who have the gospel, those who carry the gospel, it says that even, the, even their feet are beautiful in the Old Testament. The helmet of salvation, or sorry, skip the shield of faith. The shield of faith, a lot of times in, in, the, in, in battle, a shield would have been dipped in water. That way it would extinguish flames. That's why it says that we can extinguish flames from the evil one. When those attacks come, we use faith as a shield. Um, not just initial faith that we have in Jesus to um, be saved, but also enduring faith, continued faith. Um, the faith that's been handed down to us, we use that as a, as a shield as a shield, sorry, to, to block the attacks of the evil one. A helmet of salvation, that's pretty clear. Um, a, a salvation that we receive from the Lord, um, his, his righteousness. And then finally, the sword of the Spirit, knowing God's word. This is what Jesus did when he fought Satan in the, in the desert, if you would. When he was tempted by Satan, he used scripture to fight that. And we make the mistake when we think, We've got this job that God has given us to spread his gospel throughout the world, but we don't need his help in doing it. How many times have you told your kid to do something? Hey, I need you to go do this. And they obviously can't do it. And once they get like two, three, four, what do they say to you? I don't need your help. Let me do it. I want to do it. Right. They, they do not need your help to do it. And I think sometimes we act like that with God. Like, okay, God, I've got this. I don't need your help. Let me handle this. You might mess it up if you get involved, right? That's what your kid's thinking about you. And we make that mistake if we think that about God. If we think we're going to go into war, we're going to go into this battle, but I don't need these pieces of armor that God has given us. I don't need the help that God would give us to accomplish this. That's a big mistake when we go into battle when we go day to day thinking we don't need God, and maybe consciously you don't say that. Maybe consciously you don't say that. But do we do that with our actions? Which brings us to the third point. Paul's already said, I want you to understand the fight you're in, and I want you to understand the armor that you have, but I also want you to understand how to get that armor on, which is this, understanding prayer. The final few verses of this speak of prayer. Paul says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayers and supplication, with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Do you hear a word repeated in there other than prayer? It's the word all, 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 all. Paul says, pray all the time. Pray about all things and pray for all the saints. Paul's saying, if you're going to Put on these characteristics that are yours in Christ. If the Spirit's indwelled you, pray that God would help you to put these things on on a daily basis at all times for all people. We need to be living our lives in such a way that we need armor. If you go to a football game on a Friday night and you look down on the field, how do you distinguish the people who are going to be in the game playing and the people who are not going to be in the game playing? People that are wearing football, if they got a helmet and shoulder pads and knee pads and all that stuff, they're probably going to be in the game. If there's a dude carrying around a, bo a, a bottle of water and has no pads on, is he going to go in the game? No, he's not, right? People who are out on the field in the action are wearing this armor. Those who are not in the action aren't wearing the armor. I think the idea or the question begs, do we live lives 
that require us to call out to God in prayer and put on his armor. In your life, are you living a life in such a way that you're going to be in a battle that where you're going to be depending on God's prayer, depending on God via prayer to have these characteristics applied to your life? There was a pastor, his name is John Piper, and he describes prayer as two different things. We can treat it as two different things. We can treat prayer as a domestic intercom or a a wartime walkie-talkie. A domestic intercom is something that most of us probably don't have in our house, but it is, I'm in the living room and I can buzz, Javen, bring me a bottle of water. And he'll hear me, like wherever he is in, in the house, right? Is prayer like a domestic intercom in your life, or is it more like a wartime walkie-talkie? Domestic intercoms are used to just say, God, uh, just to say, hey, bring me water, bring me food, bring me comforts. Where a wartime walkie-talkie is, hey, I need backup. Hey, I need this to come. Hey, I need this in this specific moment. Do we treat our prayer life, is it a domestic intercom just asking God to give us stuff that we want? Or is it a wartime walkie-talkie that we use as we're in the midst of the fight, in the midst of the battle, serving him in our jobs, in our homes, day to day, in such a way that we need help and we need backup? Because if you are in the fight, surely you're going to call out to God. I think a lot of times our prayerlessness, one, prayerlessness is, is a sign of a lack of faith in the Lord. But also I think prayerlessness comes from lack of activity. We're not doing anything in our life that would require us to call out to the Lord in prayer. Because if we were, then we would be calling out to him. And we think of in Paul's life, he obviously needed prayer in his life. Because he says at the end of this, pray for all the saints and also pray for me that the words given to me, I would open my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. He says, pray for me that I'd be able to keep talking about Jesus. Why was Paul in prison? Because he was talking about Jesus. Right? He even says, I, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Paul prays. Paul was in the toughest of toughest places in prison for Christ. And his prayer was, help me keep going. Help me persevere. Help me stand where you've put me. Which is what the armor of God's all about. Like, so that you can stand against the evil one, so you can stand and accomplish what God has called you to do. Paul has that prayer. God, guys, pray for me that I can keep talking about Jesus even though it's hard, even though I'm in prison. Paul lived a life that needed prayer, and Jesus also lived a life that needed prayer. He often, on his own accord, before everybody else got up, would go and pray to the Father. On his knees before he, he accomplished the greatest act that there ever was, before he died on the cross, he was even in prayer in the garden, sweating drops of blood. That's wartime prayer. That's spiritual warfare. And I encourage you, be like your Savior. Put on these characteristics of truth and faith and cry out to God in prayer. Live a life that would, would require you to call out in prayer. If we're going to stand against the evil one and his schemes and accomplish what God has called us to do in reaching the world for him, we must commit to putting on these characteristics and depend on them to win this battle. I want to read the first few stanzas of a a hymn called, O Church Arise. It says this, O Church Arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ our captain. For now the weak can say that they're strong. 
and the strength that God has given. With shield of faith and belt of truth, we'll stand against the devil's lies, an army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. The second verse, our call to war is to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And with sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure and Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. Read that because it just pictures that armor of God, but also puts the stamp on the end that the battle that you're in, there's no question that you're going to win. Every battle that's ever been fought, On planet Earth, nobody knew who was going to win, no matter how bad to the bone one side was or not. But in this spiritual battle, you don't have to worry. Do we have enough to win this fight? Are we going to win? Is this this fight even worth it? Friends, it is. So stand firm, fight this spiritual fight, which is persevering in what God has called us to do, to be his people here on Earth as the church, and cry out to him and depend on him every day to help us accomplish that.